So once I was at a conference and heard the theologian Scott McKnight give a talk with the strangest title. It was called, Did Jesus Preach the Gospel? This, this seems like a silly, nonsensical question, right? But depending on how you define the word gospel, it's actually a little bit open-ended. For instance, if what we mean when we say gospel is what is sometimes called the Romans road, going through a bunch of verses in Romans to point out, all have sinned, that the gift of God is eternal life through Christ, who died for our sins, and that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. Jesus didn't preach that message, at least not in that kind of succinct, clear, step-by-step -step language. If the gospel is that we are justified by faith or that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, those just aren't phrases that Jesus uses in his ministry. As McKnight sarcastically put it, poor Jesus, born on the wrong side of the cross. Of course, <laughs> right? All those things are true. All those things are true. We read them elsewhere in Scripture. But when we read passages like we did this morning from the book of Acts, when Paul is telling the people in the synagogue that he and Barnabas bring good news that what God promised to our ancestors he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising Jesus, we should be sure we understand what he means. And it's important to catch what he means because Paul warns his listeners just after the reading we heard this morning, beware therefore that what the prophet said does not happen to you. Look you scoffers, be amazed and perish for in your days I am doing a work, a work that you will never believe even if someone tells you. Jesus also warned his listeners this morning that some wouldn't properly believe who he was. It's not a coincidence that the people start to ask him to speak plainly about whether or not he is the Christ or the Messiah on the Festival of Dedication. You likely haven't heard of the Festival of Dedication, but another name for it you probably know is Hanukkah. If you're unfamiliar, you can find the story of Hanukkah in the apocryphal book of 1 Maccabees. It's a festival that commemorates God protecting his people and rescuing them. We know it frequently by the, the lights, the oil that kept on going. But also, at the same time, there was an armed resistance from a man named Judas Maccabeus, literally Judas the Hammer, a nickname he gave himself that stuck. His insurrection against a very wicked emperor, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, it restored proper worship in the temple after it had been desecrated. So it's at this festival, when the Judeans were remembering that kind of leader, and their anticipation and expectation just can't be contained. They ask Jesus, is this you? Tell us plainly. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is inseparable from his role as Messiah, as good shepherd, as king. He talks about himself as the good shepherd earlier in John chapter 10. And we, like his hearers, believe we know what the good news looks like, what it means, and what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. But I want to spend this morning examining these passages to make sure there aren't aspects of the gospel that we miss or that we forget, so that we can be sure we see Jesus for the king he is and for the good shepherd that he is, not who we wish he was. It's interesting to look at the sermons in Acts, these first sermons of the church, and see what it is that the apostles choose to say and how they say it. Later in Athens, in Acts 17, Paul's going to use the altars made to unknown gods to quote pagan poetry to point his listeners to the one true God revealed to us in Christ. But here in a synagogue in a city called Pisidian Antioch, to those who worship the God of Israel, he tells the story of Israel. 
In order to preach about who Jesus is, Paul points to David. He actually spends much of the sermon, as we heard, talking about what God promised to David and what God promised to Israel through David and how it all comes to fulfillment in the life, ministry, death, resurrection of Jesus. Paul points out that David was a man after his, that is, God's heart, who will carry out God's wishes. See, the unique job for Israel's kings wasn't like the job for other kings. Israel's kings weren't first and foremost called to fight the Ammonites or the Philistines. They weren't called first and foremost to rule. They weren't judged by their administrative procedures. They were judged on how faithfully they followed God. In fact, God tells David that he doesn't get to be the one to build the temple because he had blood on his hands. Whatever brilliance or strength or insight the kings had, it would certainly be used by God. It didn't go to waste. But the call first and foremost was to be faithful. It was the desire to follow God that made David the preeminent king of Israel. So look at what Paul says about Jesus. He doesn't bring up his miracles or his powerful teaching, both of which happened and are important. But Paul says that he was innocent and that he was crucified on a tree. And the reason Paul uses tree instead of cross is because Deuteronomy tells us that anyone who's hung on a tree is under God's curse. But Paul says God raised him from the dead. The fact of the matter is that Jesus suffered and died shamefully in a way that should have been a clear sign that he was rejected by God. But instead, God vindicated him, the truly faithful king, by raising him from the dead. It was a sign that although he seemed to have failed, he actually succeeded. Martin Luther famously contrasted two kinds of theology, what he called a theology of glory and a theology of the cross. In Luther's terms, a theology of glory was about public victory and our own capabilities. It was about human ability and reason. But the theology of the cross insists that we must die to self, that we have nothing in ourselves to save ourselves, that the good news is actually inextricably tied to perhaps our suffering. That's what Paul is invoking here. Well, Luther's imitating Paul, right? We know, we know the order here. But when we think about the good news, when we think about Jesus as king, the king he is, not the king we want him to be, it is the king who walks in the way of the cross. And by necessity to follow him is to do the same. He says as much, if you want to follow me, if you want to be a disciple of mine, take up your cross. 2,000 years later, we, we know what the cross is and we, we understand its victory and its role. But remember, take up your cross is take up a shameful public death. The cross is not just painful, it is a way to tell everybody else that you failed. You were hung in a cross outside of a town so that people would walk by and witness your subjugation to Rome. The cross is shame. And yet, that's the way we're invited to go because that's actually the way that leads to life. We get a picture of that in our reading from Revelation. While John's vision contains some pieces about the future in the whole book, we can't forget that Revelation, the revelation to John, is actually a letter to seven churches. And it served, or was meant to serve, as an encouragement for them as they faced persecution. So the imagery isn't just about what's to come. It actually communicates truth about who God is even now. So when John sees these people dressed in white robes, worshiping God before the throne, and he asks who they are, 
It makes sense for these churches facing persecution to hear that these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation, those who have gone through persecution. Suffering was coming to those churches. The churches that John wrote letters to, those churches do not exist anymore. Let's be clear. Did they fail? No. Because we pray that they were faithful through their own great tribulation. Suffering was coming, but for those who faced it and were faithful to Christ, there would be vindication. So if our picture of the gospel and Jesus' kingship is about a life without suffering, about taking power and overthrowing kings, maybe it's missing what the Bible actually teaches us about the way of Christ. Think about how the New Testament instructs us to live in society. Paul talks about living peaceably with all, about deferring to earthly authorities, earthly authorities that were very busy persecuting Christians and claiming to be divine. Why? Because Paul writes elsewhere that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual rulers and authorities. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies and those who persecute us, to receive a slap to the face and offer our other cheek, that when the oppressive Romans forced you to walk a mile, you walked an extra mile beyond it. The witness of the New Testament is that grasping at earthly power is aiming for the wrong target because that's not where our struggle lies and that our primary citizenship is in heaven. In fact, the New Testament gives us all kinds of fantastic pictures about a sort of indifference to power, a holy indifference, I might say. Jesus, in front of Pilate, who's about to execute him, he doesn't undermine him. He doesn't overthrow him. He just has this fantastic line where Paul, Pilate's like, why aren't you scared? I have the power to kill you. And Jesus, I imagine him stone-faced in my head, in the movie version of the gospel in my brain, Jesus just kind of looks at him and smirks and says, you only have power because my father allowed it. Paul has that exact same kind of indifference to the emperors that he stands before. He's arrested, he moves around, and he just kind of sits there. And they're about to kill him, and he's like, oh, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. You probably shouldn't do that. And they're terrified. He could have invoked his Roman citizenship so much earlier. And yet, for Paul, even his status as a Roman citizen, as a member of the Jewish elite, is secondary. These are powerful positions that you would think he would leverage, and yet he's willing to forsake anything for the sake of the gospel. The good news is this, Jesus is king and others are not, which means we don't have to chase after earthly power or comfort. The way of the gospel isn't about acquiring power, it's not about glory, it's about humility and suffering, but knowing that in the end God will vindicate those who choose his abundant life. This then frees up to follow another important aspect of the gospel, as Paul tells it here, and that is that the gospel tears down divisions. Now, Paul, like the rest of the New Testament writers, are clear to point out that Jesus was the Savior to Israel. Jesus himself would point out that he was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus isn't some generic Savior come out of some sort of platonic ideal. He's the fulfillment of God's promises to a particular people, the fulfillment of the law given to them. Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises made to God's chosen people. And look at how Paul refers to these people. He calls them fellow children of Abraham and God-fearing Gentiles. Now, by invoking Abraham, Paul invokes the promises made to Abraham. And when God called Abraham, he promised his descendants, or he promised him descendants that outnumber the stars, a land, 
which Paul mentioned, he eventually brought them into a land. But there's the last part of that promise that he said that through those descendants, the whole world would be blessed. The promise to Abraham wasn't just, hey, good news, you're going to be a big nation and everyone's going to like you. It's, hey, good news, you're going to be the chosen instrument through which God would answer the problem of sin for the whole world. Genesis 1 through 11 paints a picture for us that leads to a problem. We're stuck. After the Garden of Eden, sin intensifies. We have the flood. We have the Tower of Babel. It seems as if humanity is absolutely out of luck. And then Abraham comes in and God says, I'm going to fix this. And the way he chooses to fix it is through this family. And Jesus then is the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. Through Israel's Messiah, all the world would be blessed. Now, while he talks about them in two different categories in Acts, the Gentiles and the children of Abraham, Paul makes a different theological point in his letters. The whole book of Ephesians is about tearing down the wall of hostility. And Paul brings up Abraham again in his letter to the Galatians as his defense of what he calls his gospel. That is, the gospel as he, Paul, proclaims it. And at the heart of the issue he's addressing in Galatians is about divisions between Jew and Greek. And Paul's letter hits its apex at the end of Galatians 3, that in Christ there's no slave nor free, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is no male and female. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is the picture we saw in Revelation. It wasn't just that Israel would be, would be at the throne. People from every tribe, every nation. There isn't a monoculture in heaven. Heaven will be the beautiful diversity of humankind that all cultures, all peoples are able to be redeemed and brought to the throne of God to worship the Lamb. This is the picture we have. And so the desire that we have as humans to find a champion who's going to fight for us and defeat them, whoever them is for you that you think you want to beat, and I say you and I mean me, <laughs> whoever it is that we think these are the them that God is going to defeat, that's, that's missing an important piece of the gospel. The good news is that there is no more us and them in Christ. All of humankind is given the opportunity to be inheritor of the promise to Abraham, to live fully human lives because of the incarnation, teaching, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. This is why Paul, this preeminent Jew, will find his calling as the apostle to the Gentiles because he realized the good news was that all were welcomed in. And what are they welcomed into? Well, what Christ offers is something magnificent, the forgiveness of sins. We tend to think about sin in terms of infractions, like a time when I lied or when I was mean to a server at a restaurant or when I snapped at my neighbor, right? We think about sins as these pinpoint moments. Forgiveness of sins, then, is simply a transactional matter. It's sometimes how we talk about it. It's one of the biblical pictures, right, where God looks at my individual actions and wipes them away. And the ultimate benefit is we get our golden tickets to be with God when we die. The gospel in this case would just be about celestial accounting. Individual sins, individual forgiveness. Ledgers, balance sheets, bottom lines. It's just a transaction. It's a strictly economic thing. Now, I don't think the gospel is less than that. Hear me out. The gospel is no less than that. But I do think it's actually so much more. In fact, I think both sin and what we're offered in forgiveness are far greater than that. Because what if sin is actually way more complex than the list of bad things that I did? What happens when you aren't faced with the right and the wrong thing to do, but just a wide array of bad options? 
where you have to choose a lesser evil? What happens when you snap at your neighbor, not because you made a one-time choice, but because over time you've become the kind of person who is impatient and angry? What happens when your own tendency to be impatient and angry isn't just your own doing, but is inherited from a family of origin? What happens when we're indifferent to those who are vulnerable in our midst? Is every second we don't offer help an instance of sin that has to be forgiven? We'll confess things that we've done and things we left undone. So is every single moment where we're leaving something undone another sin that has to be forgiven? If we have to think about sin in terms of individual itemized list, we're probably missing something. What of systemic sin, of sins of the mob across time, where no one's individually responsible, but collectively we've built a system, a society that doesn't love our neighbors as ourselves? I think about in the wake of the 2008 economic crash, everybody wanted someone to go to jail, right? We, someone had to, had to get punished. We understood there was tons written and movies made about what led to that downfall and someone ought to pay. But the problem was there wasn't just one villain behind the scenes. It's easier in comic books and Marvel movies when there's a supervillain, but there isn't. There's a whole system that gets built up over time. Do we blame every single last cog in the evil machine? Do every one of them have to be blamed? Well, probably yes and no. None of them are individually responsible for it all. All of them are complicit. And the next question we ought to ask ourselves is, I may not have caused a 2008 economic collapse, but in what ways do I participate in systems where this happens? It's not all up to me, it's not all on my shoulders, but maybe there are ways that I continue to contribute to a greater problem. It can feel overwhelming, what can I even do? Sin is wide reaching, but the freedom that Christ offers is even wider. Look at what Paul says here, by this Jesus, everyone who believes is set free from all those sins from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now what Paul means here can't be that there's zero forgiveness of sins before Jesus, because the Old Testament has plenty of examples of God forgiving. In the law, we see it in the Psalms, you know, blessed is the one whose sin is forgiven. It's in the prophets, it's everywhere. But there was something still incomplete and temporary about that forgiveness. So the letter to Hebrews is all about. No, Christ offers freedom beyond just clearing the ledger. N.T. Wright paints this beautiful picture about what I'm talking about here. He says this, the new world which God is creating through the death and resurrection of Jesus is all about forgiveness of sins at every level, your sins and mine, the wickedness, the folly, the failing, the rebellion, the shameful, dirty, lying, cheating, glittering, sophisticated, flashy, corporate, international, global, local, personal, individual sins, the whole lot, all dealt with. The law of Moses enabled you, says Paul, to get rid of a good deal of sin, to be declared in the right in relation to them, but there were all kinds of things still muddying the waters, and they can now all be sorted out. Nothing needs stand in God's record against you anymore. You can be justified, declared to be in the right, forgiven, a full and free member of God's people. That is the immediate effect of the good news that Jesus is risen as the Messiah, God's son. This is life. That is true life, and that's eternal life. When we read in the New Testament about eternal life, it isn't just that it doesn't have an expiration, although that's part of it. But we pray in the Lord's Prayer that things would be on earth as they are in heaven. Don't think of heaven as some planet way off in the cosmos 
but as a reality that is somehow just on the other side of the curtain. And when heaven breaks through, it's like light piercing through the clouds. Eternal life, the eternal life that Christ offers, doesn't start when you die. It starts when the life of Christ permeates your life. And you get to live into that prayer where sins are forgiven and we're enabled to live lives more and more fully like things are in heaven. When we're able to live life abundantly right now. And John paints a picture of this again in Revelation. They will hunger no more, thirst no more. The sun doesn't damage them. There are waters of life. God will wipe tears from their eyes. Now, John is quoting from two parts of Isaiah in which the prophet is showing how things will be in the age to come. But through the resurrection of Jesus, that age is breaking through even now. That age to come is crashing into our world. It broke through at first in the resurrection of Jesus, and its ripple effects continue now until he comes again. The gospel, the good news of Jesus as Israel's Messiah, the fulfillment of God's promises means that heaven is breaking through. And in that process, we no longer bear the guilt and shame of our sin. But the erasing of debt is only part of it. The forgiveness of sins isn't just about mercy, not getting what we deserve, but about grace, getting what we don't deserve. About being enabled to be the people of God. Being free from sin, as Paul puts it in Acts, is being free from sin's power over us. It is the promise of Abraham crashing into our reality. So, what is the gospel? What is good news? Well, we read in Paul, we read Paul in Acts, preaching here that Jesus, the Messiah who fulfilled the promises made to Israel and Abraham, suffered and yet defeated death. And we're then invited into this new way of life in which there is forgiveness and true life offered to us and any who are willing to step in. It is a life that still carries with it persecution and suffering because if our Savior suffered, why should we expect any less for ourselves? But that life will be abundant because it will be eternal life. Eternal life as in borrowing from the eternity of the life of the age to come. Life that doesn't care about having power or whose side is right because our lives have been transformed by the forgiveness of sins and the life of the world to come. That all sounds well and good, but what does it look like? I have a few ideas. So I think this. I think in our resistance to the theology of glory, the promise of power, we must refuse to play the games of the world in which everyone grasps for more and more power and influence. My own spiritual heritage, the sort of family of faith that goes behind me, is that of the Anabaptists, who have, for most of their history, been a witness to the uniqueness and strangeness of the kingdom of God. And the fact that earthly powers are to be respected and followed, but that we do not pursue power the way the world does. We don't look for strong men and strong women to fight and be mean and punch back on our behalf, securing victories through might alone. Our primary hope isn't through the machines of earthly kingdoms. The good news of Jesus as our king means that we don't have to play those games. We can have a holy indifference to power. Not avoiding it entirely, in fact, by refusing to play the games of who gets to be on top, we're suddenly free to be prophets, to call a strike a strike, to name sin where it happens, to be the kind of people who say, Jesus is king and you are a steward. You will answer for how you rule. We are free from having to do what's most effective because we can just be honest and tell the truth. 
It's the freedom of putting our hope elsewhere and investing our lives in Christ's kingdom agenda first, letting God take care of the details and simply saying, I'm going to be faithful to him. It means that we no longer think in terms of us versus them. The king who told us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us would probably have very strong words for modern politics and culture wars. If you find yourself saying, they are so polarizing and divisive, maybe step back, play that sentence again in your head, and do some self-reflecting. They are so bad. It's only them who's dividing us. What do we just do in that sentence? Our current political structures have an expiration date. There will be an end to these earthly kingdoms, ours included, but we're truly citizens of a true kingdom that will have no end. We've discovered as a society that rage fuels clicks and likes and ads and economics. And those who want power and influence want to bait you into more rage and hatred of the other in order to get you votes or get them votes to sell you things or probably both. There's an entire economy built on making you mad at someone else. And everybody knows that that's how it works. You can find the articles where people say, isn't it rough that we all just get enraged all the time? <laughs> we all know it, and we all give into it. Don't fall for it. It's exciting and exhilarating and entirely toxic. Shut off those things that tell you to start hating other people and be like, be like the apostles and go and listen to them. When Paul goes to the Areopagus in Athens and he walks among an entire idol factory. It's just, it's just things to foreign gods. It's just altar after altar to idols. But Paul doesn't overthrow them. He, he looks at them and says, hey, this one over here, that, that altar to an unknown god wasn't actually made to Yahweh, the king of Israel. But Paul saw and he thought, hey, what if I quote some of your own poets and I look at this and say, hey, I think we have something in common and I think the thing you have points to a greater reality. What if we looked at the people who believed very different from us, who asserted for things that were very contrary to us and instead of looking at them and thinking primarily, how do I win against them? I thought, they're an image bearer made in the image of God and there's something about them that desires something good. And as misdirected as I may think it is, what if I heard them and understood why they did what they did? And maybe at the end of our conversation, we find ourselves both closer to God. What if that was our posture? The good news is we don't have to fall into the patterns of rage and hatred. We don't have to play those games, and we don't have to throw ourselves into that world. Because the good news is that we have forgiveness of sins, freedom from sin. The freedom that is both a hope for later and for now. We're invited to live into the reality of forgiven lives, free from the ultimate penalty from our sins, but also free from the power of sin. Know in your hearts that God no longer holds sins against you, but also take hold of his grace and grow into Christ-likeness. Don't just worry about making right or wrong decisions in the moment, as if all of our ethical and moral lives are just a series of shoulder angels and devils just presenting options to us. Instead, Build character and virtue so that you can be more and more like Christ. Invest your time in prayer and reading of God's word, in listening to other Christians. Because in that moment where you have to make the tough decision, 
It's not that moment where the decision is made. It's in all the time beforehand that prepared you. Are you, are you going to be the person who is like Christ enough to stand for him? Let us look for the kingdom that is coming, that eternal life is arriving even now. We can live as a peculiar people who look to our crucified and risen Savior as our true king. And in doing so, we can inherit and fulfill the promise given to Abraham. Yes, to be blessed, but also to bless the world that God loves enough to suffer for and suffer alongside. In the end, that all sounds like pretty good news to me. Amen.